I'm Matt Brailsford. I'm Kevin Jump. And you're listening to Package Manifest. A podcast where we discuss the various aspects of package developer life on the Umbreco platform. Okay, hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Pretty tired. Yeah, I'm tired. Coke Garden, which just finished, was quite intense, wasn't it? Even though it was online. Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, the length of it and just sat in front of the screens was was a long day. Yeah, I I, I realised quite late on it was a every talk ran into every other talk, and you know, there was no gap. And I think I tricked myself into just watching talks with no gap. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit late when I went. Oh, maybe I should just make a self gap. <laughs> but yeah. We had to put a few in there just to get the dog out and take her for a yeah, walk. Yeah. And eat. You have, you have to eat. Well, you do. You do have to eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> did you manage any pre-Code Garden stuff in the last fortnight? Uh, got a few things. So, we were working on the swag store, which we can kind of get into later on, maybe. But yeah. Obviously, that didn't launch at Code Garden, but we, we have still been building on top of that. But beyond that... Um, I, this was actually at the same time as Code Garden, but I can deal with it separately. But I watched, I, I attended Alpine JS Day, or Alpine Day, which was pretty interesting. Uh, I think I mentioned in the last one that I've been yeah. playing around with Alpine JS yeah. and really nice framework. And this was uh, their one day conference. They had some pretty cool talks and they were showcasing what's coming in, in the new library. And cool. It's just a. It seems to be almost a, a rebuild or like restructure. So I think uh, the guy that developed it developed it to to make it work, and now they've gone back and like really honed it and made it really pretty pretty tidy. Nice and from the from the examples of the code structure, really modular and, and nice and and all those types of things. But yeah, it's good. it's pretty impressive, and I like it. Well, it's impressive that you did two conferences uh, online at once. So, yeah, that was hard going. How about you? Uh, well, I sort of foolishly thought I'd do some code while watching Code Garden, so I've uh, been migrating using Complete to .NET Core in the background while watching talks, which has mainly been a lot of cut and pasting, bit of regex. <laughs> I was regexing code, doing search and replace on log lines. It was a uh, a bit freaky, but now you've got ninety nine problems. Yep, <laughs> 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 but. Uh, it's a slog at the moment that there's just so much code and it's just uh, making sure it's it's not got to the fun bit where it all works and then just making sure it's actually just going through and there's like six or seven libraries and they've all got to compile. You do one at a time, do all the searching replaces, make all the usings know what they are and uh, I'm just plodding through that for the last couple of days. So, But almost there, it compiles now, so that's Ooh. the first thing, yeah. I must admit, I, I, uh, I saw that you... Uh, marketing suite they tweeted during Curl Garden that they've they've got theirs running on on .NET Core yeah. and now I'm I'm under pressure so yeah. yesterday on Friday I I I actually made a new project and created all the project structure and and tentatively started so I think that might be what I end up doing post Curl Garden actually getting going I think I've spent enough time planning now yeah it's a little addictive when you get going as well because it's just about it's a a lot of it's swatting things and going, oh, just rename all them. Now, oh, just fix that. And you just get into a flow. It, it, it's a lot, but you, you can just tick them off as you go. Yeah, it's trying to avoid fixing things when that's not necessarily what, what you're here to do right now. Oh, yeah. Focus on the task of getting it ported over, and then we can fix certain things later on, I think. Yeah. I made a start. I made the projects. Well, that's, that's good. That's great. But it's pretty cool that you're going ahead with using Complete. Yeah. I know you've got the core of it already working. Yeah, well, using's working. The the using complete stuff's interesting. It's uh, it's the bits where it's low level that are completely changed. It, so we do some authentication filtering. So you know to make sure the communication between the servers is secure, and that's completely different in .NET Core. It's like you, the authorization's changed, and then a couple of places like where we download or upload uh, multi byte streams, so the files going between the servers. That's it, it's quite complicated because when you search the internet for that, you get loads of people telling you how to do it in .NET Core 2 or .NET Core 1. Or 2, and then yeah. 
when you spend ages and you find how you do it in .NET Core 5 and it's two lines of code <laughs> because there's in, in .NET Core 2 and 3, loads of the stuff for like ASP background libraries were missing. And so how you get a multi-stream uh, download out, you have to hand crank a lot of stuff. Right. Whereas by .NET Core 5, there's helper libraries in, the li- in there now to do it for you. So it becomes file stream. Uh, this 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 stream into this file and it goes, whereas the .NET Core examples on the internet are all here's a, here's your fifteen page helper library you need to write to do this. So, but getting there that's the, that's that's actually the hardest thing I found at the moment is finding the right uh, .NET Core version examples. Yeah. Otherwise, you're reinventing the wheel. So I can imagine that's going to be the trickiest thing, I guess, for people mm-hmm. that are porting things over because we've said. Um, the the code change itself is probably not that big of a deal, but it's being able to find what the change is, isn't it? So yeah. if if it's different between all the .NET Core versions as well, that's that's going to be kind of interesting because that that's the hardest thing I found is just knowing which one it is. And yeah, I'm sure I've probably done things that are .NET Core two, and I didn't need to do them because five does it for you. But finding that, yeah, even in the Microsoft documentation, it's a bit uh, hard to know which version you're looking at. So, but but getting on, and actually, when you find the right one, it's like it's simpler than some of it's simpler than the framework answers. So, <laughs> .NET Framework uh, file download, file upload is 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 twenty or thirty lines of code, and .NET Core it was three. So that's like just finding it. <laughs> that's the biggest problem. I guess, given that we're talking about .NET Core, another thing related to that recently in Umbraco Worlds is the decision that all packages moving forward. For .NET Core are going to be NuGet only. Yes. What are your thoughts on this? I, I was so, slightly surprised because I'm on the package <laughs> team, but because of uh, Code Garden and the package awards, and obviously I got nominated and won a package award, I wasn't on the uh, too early, too early. Well, but I wasn't on the package team meetings for about three weeks, so I missed <laughs> the last meeting I had. They were talking like. Oh, we can. We might be able to do packages like this, and you get and and it, it was difficult, and they were obviously working through it. And then I, I missed a couple of things when on holiday came back, and I'm like, we're not doing packages anymore. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> just just new get. That's fine. I mean, from a technical point of view, yay, it's yeah. one package format, and that, and that's great. I'm not too concerned about what everyone is saying. Uh, how do you add data types, or how do you add doc types now that you're in new get only? I don't think that's a biggest deal, especially for me, but I'm not sure when you look at the packages. If you're not doing a starter kit, it's not a huge deal. Most of the time you're not creating content and data type doc types in your packages. You might create the odd data type, just as an example. So not even, because if you create the property editor, obviously that doesn't mean there's a data type, and you might want to create that as an example in your package. But the reality is, I'm not sure that's a huge deal, and it can be coded even now. I know the uh, the core team are talking about somehow making it easy to create those things as part of a probably migration. The reality is, the package service, unless they rip it out, is still there, and the package service takes XML and will create like a doc type or a data type for you in the same way that a package currently does, which is non-destructive. So if the if it's already there, it doesn't overwrite it but if it isn't there it creates it it's not quite what usync does so you can just tap into that if you do it in the right place so i don't think it's a huge deal technically that you can't create doc types from NuGet. i think i think it's a bigger deal that i think there's still quite a lot of people who just create use packages yeah now i suppose it doesn't mean that those people can't but the reality is we are sort of closing down an avenue of certain usage of Umbraco by saying you can't install packages in the back office. So I understand the technical thing. It'll be interesting to see how that happens because I would say, and I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but my, I've always thought it's about one in 10 of something like Translation Manager. That's a good example. We'll have 10 times as many NuGet downloads as it has our downloads, but it still has a significant number of our downloads. And we do provide some of the connectors in package format because that's what we've been asked to do. So whenever we write a connector for Translation Manager, we'll just do it in NuGet. So here it is, it's in NuGet. But of the 10 of them, two or three people of the people have said, can we have it in a package format? The customer wants to install the package. 
So I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen there. Obviously, those people will be forced down the road of having to do something with NuGet. And so I, 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 that's a, I'm not 100% sure about that at the moment. Because, I mean, what's that going to mean for people who haven't quite got that developer savviness for some of the stuff they're doing? Yeah, I think pretty much the same um, point of view, really, that technically not big a, 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 that big a deal, to be honest with you. At the end of the day, both package formats are just a zip file with like a specific structure and do specific things. But it's definitely the, the install of it that's that's going to be the potential, potential issue. Um, I think just the fact that NuGet requires so much technical... Um, Require uh, it needs a dev to install it. Essentially, um, I think we've we've hit on this before to do with .NET Core potentially requiring using statements in the startup script, which there is a way around. So whether we'll still do that now, if I think the the main reason for that workaround was because of Umbraco packages. But if we're not doing Umbraco packages, are we just going to use those using statements in the startup script? Um, but that ultimately means that any package to be installed is going to be require a developer to go in and, and modify that file. And it's just the process of even simple packages that are JavaScript based, you can't just install them like you could uh, an Umbraco package and they'd just be there and, and get picked up and run. The problem with uh, the NuGet package setup uh, or NuGet packages in general, <laughs> They're, they're, they're meant to be a distribution system for uh, DLLs, but we're using them with static files and content files. And so Umbraco had to do some interesting bits, which is a post-build task to copy those content files over. But that means now, ultimately, anybody who is even just creating a JavaScript plugin, they've at least got to build the project in Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code to trigger that post-build uh, task to copy that over. So again, there's no, there's not even a simple install mechanism that that doesn't require you to have developer access, which I think that's going to potentially block a few people. And I think it's this thing of who is who is Umbraco targeted at. Umbraco's always tried to target quite a lot of audiences. So there's obviously the developer, the .NET developers, but the front end and potentially no code people who just want to be able to run and and install packages and uh click around and change all the settings i think it's those that are going to struggle that audience now that's going to struggle um because they've got to go via the code mechanism there's no ability to do that anymore i know lee lee kelleher mentioned uh a, a good uh, reasoning as well why package installs are pretty useful so i know he's worked on a few projects that have been legacy projects and the client has gone on umbraco website it's got some problems but they've literally got no like ftp details or server access details and so it was uh the some really useful packages that could help in that scenario so like the config editor um and I can't remember off the top of my head some other ones, but other utility packages that let you access those system files and see things as a developer that you would normally get by FTP access. But if you can't do that, it was nice to be able to install those packages and get access to that and, and help the customer out and fix things without needing all that detail. But now, yeah, you're going to need that build process. So um, you're going to have to have that full full access at all times. So I think that's going to be interesting whether whether something new is developed as well on top of this. I don't know. I've been pondering an Umbreco CLI, but I don't know how, how well that would work. It's just a, an initial thought, but I know that's something that a lot of front-end people are, are, are more familiar with these days, uh, but it still doesn't give you the, a, a fix to the to the to the other problems it it changes the tool in a bit i mean because there is a uh, package template as part of the current build so you can do a .NET new umbraco package and it puts some of those build scripts in for you but you're right you yeah. still need a developer side to do that i don't know I, I suppose there was a little bit of talk of maybe if you've got control of the hosting platform so obviously in umbraco cloudland 
you can do something to make it easy to install even a new get package because you can sort of go and do some new get in the background if you've got complete control of the hosting platform obviously for most people just installing it and running it that's not going to be necessarily right but whether or not there's something there to sort of say this rat if you're on iis this thing will install.net packages on an iis platform for you as an addition but what that does to workflow i mean all that's all over the place at the moment i've too thought about uh umbreco cli for a while i've a couple of times on v v8 and v7 had to go with trying to power shell umbreco and never got anywhere because that i thought would be a nice thing to do but i wonder really it's very developer-y I, I think you're right the just the creation of a javascript property editor has become a bit of a harder thing to do yeah but then i don't know i mean it, it maybe we're spoiled in umbreco world because if you try and do any JavaScript now, how many npm and node commands do you need to know before you can yeah. get a framework in? So comparing it to React or Vue or any any of the modern frameworks now, just developing on Umbreco isn't necessarily that bad in comparison. But I suppose that's a that's not necessarily an excuse, is it? That's a well, it, it's not as bad as something else. So yeah, I don't know. But maybe it's just the usual thing, I guess that it's really hard to take things away from people that are, are used to a mechanism. So maybe it'll all be fine. Maybe mm. it won't be as big a deal. And maybe .NET Core has got a nicer install process that is kind of familiar to front-end devs. So maybe it's, it's not that big of a deal. But we'll just have to suck it and see. Um, and I guess what will be what will, will be. And, and if, if it is a problem, then hopefully something new will come along. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I'm guessing for me, it's fine and it's great. So I am sort of projecting what it might be for other people. But I suppose, as far as I'm concerned, new get new get builds and installs, I'm I'm more than happy with. One less, uh, one less thing in our build process. Yes. <laughs> cool. Well, we 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 mentioned it briefly at the beginning. So today's topic is obviously going to be Code Garden. So. This is this is Saturday, the day after the last day of Code Garden. So yeah. it was two and a half day conference, all online. Um, some pretty interesting stuff, and I guess the first things to get off the bat are your your renewed MVP, right? I'm a renewed MVP, yes. Yeah. Yes. So we're both we're we're both renewed MVPs. Yes. Woo. Yay. Woot. And on top of that, for more celebratory of successes, um, we both got. Package awards. We did, yeah. You've got a big one. I did. We both got awards. Yeah. It's nice to get... That's great. Well, it's nice to get nominated and it's nice to get recognised. No, it was really good. So I got package of the year, I think it's package of the year. I don't know. It was just... It got confusing at the end. (laughs) 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 But yeah, no, it's really good. It's it's great. All I know is you got the big one. I got the big award, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I, I can tell you, I, I didn't think I should get the big one, but uh, I wasn't part of any judging panel, so, you know, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you go. I don't know. We I was on the Code Cabin Slack channel whilst the package awards were going on, so, and you, you think con- was constantly uh, runner-up on a lot of them, and everybody was going, no way did you think come runner-up, no way. Yeah. And then like it came to the big one and you sync one and we were all like, Oh right, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> I I was only win one award, obviously, no, not all of them. But yeah, yeah. No, it was great. I must say for for you sync and, and you in general, I think it was very well deserved. So I I've used you sync on projects and you you've always been at the end of a, a DM or an email or whatever. So the support's always been out uh, amazing. And I know you, you give the same support to everybody, not just not yeah. just me, our friends and, and whatnot. So I know it's really well deserved. And I think everybody's been singing the praises of you think recently anyway and seeing it come to .NET Core so quickly and whatnot. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. It's just sort of a, it's matured now, I think. It's, it's, it's some of it, it's been for a while, but it, it's, a, it's just sort of sitting there. It's quite happy. So I'm very pleased with that. And so you should be. I mean, with Vendor, we're, we're super chuffed. So we've got a lot. We've still got a lot to do in the .NET part, but it's to say it's only been around for one year, which seems way longer than that. But yeah, it's it's only really been out, and people have been using it for for one year. So for people to 
to take it on and, and love it so much and kind of vote for it has, has been huge for us. And didn't uh, was it Bump Digital won an award with a vendor solution as well, didn't he, on the, yeah. the main awards? So, I mean, it's obviously been used in heavily in real world and, and they are coming through as well. Well, I'm t- I'm constantly talking to Callum, so the stuff that he's doing on top of vendor and, and customizations is just insane. That I mean, he's the first, and him and uh, Bump Digital are the first vendor prestige partner, which is uh, essentially companies that know how to really maximize on top of vendor and do whatever's necessary to make it fit the customer's um requirements yeah. and some of the stuff he's done on top of it he's just like wow uh really impressive stuff so well deserved for him but i'm i'm just really pleased as well that we could be a little tiny part of that and that yeah it's we've created something that's um extendable in in those ways to to really make those bespoke solutions for customers so i think we've always tried to take the ETH off of Umbraco, which is like it bends to your will, not the other way around, which I think yeah. is a is is a problem of a lot of other platforms. So it's just really nice to see that it's actually paying off and people are yeah. creating good stuff for their customers. So I'm chuffed. So we're patting ourselves on the back yeah. out of the way. Yes. <laughs> well, somebody's got to do it. Uh, Anything particular stand out at CodeGarden that was, I guess, package developer related? Yeah, uh, I mean, quite a lot of the talks on the first day, which was much more from the core team, sort of uh, yeah. were very package related and sort of confirmed stuff that obviously playing around with the betas already, I knew about the direction that it was going. But now the, the .NET Core development was a, obviously a real thing that affects package development and how that sort of does change the way your development works. So there was quite a bit of that. The the talk of uh, marketplace and mm. what the package store was probably the biggest thing. I mean, that sort of ties into a bit to the new get stuff, obviously, because how a package is delivered. But the general gist of uh, the call now talking about sort of trying to fix some of the mess, for want of a better word, of the three, if not four different package offerings that there currently are for Umbreco. I think that's sort of long overdue. As a as a direction to sort of tidy that up because it's a bit messy when you look at the three different ways you can find a package on our in in Umbraco or on umbraco.com slash apps I think is the other one isn't it and it, it so I think the general direction is definitely an uh, the right one they're very early on I think it's more of an intention at the moment to say we're probably going to call it marketplace we're going to tidy it up. Is about, about where it is, but it's definitely an interesting direction and how that impacts not only package development but sort of package marketing. I think yeah is is a real interesting one to consider and work out what it's going to be like. I mean, I'm definitely pleased that they are um, taking package development more seriously. I guess I think this is what I'm getting from this that the that they're. They're trying to build that ecosystem and, and maturing all the things that they had in place originally. Yeah. So I'm definitely pleased that they're they're doing that and kind of giving it its own identity. And and I guess the thing with the marketplace, I, I'm kind of torn to be honest on the word marketplace. Yeah, I know they've chosen it because there's a lot of other platforms that are marketplace, and it's not necessarily that everything is going to be for sales. There'll obviously be three free things on there, and the the thing I guess that they want to get from that is that it is a marketplace of, of ideas and sharing and whatnot, but also it's not a bad thing for people to make money on their packages, which I've always been a, 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 a big proponent of that anyway. Like I, I want to see Umbraco as an ecosystem. I don't want it to be just a, C, uh, a CMS that people only build custom things for their clients on. I want I want to see other things built on top of it. But, but at the same time, I'm not sure whether it, it goes it feels too heavily on the commercial side. I hope it it's still uh, clear that the same open source projects and there's a lot of them that are still really well supported and and really good quality. So I'd, yeah, I hope they continue um, and and live on there. But yeah, I am glad that they're taking it more seriously and and really pushing that side of things. Yeah, 
I saw a couple of comments in the stream when they were doing it about people talking about commercialising the packages based on a marketplace. Yeah. And people saying, does that mean there'll be a way of like selling your packages through it? I don't think from the conversations I've had that the court are talking about that. No. As, a, as in them providing... I think having done, having worked through that, it's never that simple as well. It's an incredibly complicated thing to sell a piece of software yeah. uh, via all the sales. So I, I think that's not on the radar. I might be wrong, but I, certainly the impression I got, which maybe is why they've gone for Marketplace and not App Store, which was the obvious yeah. other one. And again, I think has the same connotations over what's free and what's marketed. Well, I think that I think that market thing, Marketplace is probably what's caused that confusion. So yeah. Um, I know I saw the same things. Uh, Umbraco have historically had something called the Delhi, which didn't last very long. Yeah. But that was their that was their attempt at, um, uh, at a similar kind of thing that did offer the commercial side and the licensing side of things. But I think they learned pretty quickly that that that's a difficult um, thing to manage. And I think that was also at a time when maybe it wasn't the right time to do that. Yeah. It's like everything; everything's about timing. Um, yeah. Uh, tablets and things have been made well before the iPad, but it was just the right time that that became a success. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think they're going to be doing anything to help with the licensing side either. Um, I think it would be wrong to do that anyway, because even between you, me, you marketing suite, and those types, I think we've all got different licensing setups. So I don't think they could create anything that would suit everybody anyway. I mean, yeah, you you could write something, but it, it it would it would never be quite right. Especially the the model, the domain model for every license is different at the moment, isn't it? How you yeah. license domains, how Mark and Sweet licenses them, and how we license them for Usync is different. So I I think it would be really difficult. I just think I, I mean I think people can see that there's nothing wrong with trying to get some uh, commercialness out of your package, but it's uh, it's just. That's probably quite a big ask, but I, I don't know. I mean, I suspect what they're going down is here is a marketplace of everything and some of it's free and some of it's not free. And it'll be interesting to see. There was talk, and this is the, the other bit, I suppose, that I'm a bit concerned. There was talk about reaching out to other sort of service providers and how they go in. So it'd be integrations, which sort of goes into the DXP bit. I'm a bit cautious, and I've, I've had these discussions with people in, in the Umbreco as well. The Umbreco App Store sort of, I think, tried that a little bit, and I don't yeah. think it, it hit. I think the app store's a bit uh, bit hit and miss as to what it offers. It sort of va- vaguely suggests that some of the things on there will work with Umbraco and doesn't really give you any great insight into what you can do with Umbraco. So it'll be interesting to see how that actually sort of fits into the marketplace and actually gives people things that they can see work with Umbraco or the, the way of getting them, not just a vague connection to a crm or whatever it might be either that or just clarity i suppose just make it really clear that that's what they are i was the same when the app store came along i was pretty surprised at some of the the names that were on there just because i'd never seen them before and i'd never seen them as packages but then when you did look in detail it was more about this thing capable of integrating to umbraco not that there was a package for it it's just you can do something to make it tie in. So I understand why they did it. And I know, again, uh, Umbraco got to pay their bills and partner with lots of different people, not just package developers. So it makes total sense for them to to reach out to other other platforms and say, if you can if you can integrate, we'll help you market as well. So that's completely fine. But yeah, I definitely think there needs to be clearer uh idea of what each thing does whether it is integrated package or whether it's a third-party service that just plays nicely with umbraco those types of things yeah definitely i mean that sort of leads on to the discussion they were talking about uh, a dxp which i'm going to guess is digital experience platform (laughs) i believe because to be honest i'm not the sort of at that end anymore Uh, and they were talking about best of breed weren't they best of breed dxp so for me, and I'm a bit naive when it comes to this because I think it's acronyms that change all the time. And if you're not developing big websites every day, your acronyms will go over the place. So I'll probably get this wrong. But I would suspect uh, you market and suites, obviously, a big part of some of a digital experience platform as a tool. Yeah. And vendor is a commerce tool. And then there are other things 
that's 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 where my knowledge runs out. There are other <laughs> things. There was five or six things around this that made it a digital experience platform, and they were talking there about that's about integrations. And I don't know is that where you say it's integration partners? So company X will help you integrate with software Y. Yeah, I guess another interesting thing there, especially given the NuGet talk that we just spoke about before, is is how all that will will tie in because that's pretty recent news in terms of uh umbraco going pure nougat and not having the package format anymore and historically on the package uh, on our on the app store it's generally linked to umbraco packages because there would be a manual download or a, a download via the back office but if that's not the case anymore how is that going to sit with um with the new package format or nougat packages because they're not manually downloaded anymore. So what is the what is the marketplace if it's not the place you go to get them? It's it's going to be almost a, an advertising, not an advertising place, but where you would go to find information about them and then go and get them in, in a different in a different way. So I don't know how that's going to play. No, I think the only it's very early again. The only discussion I've seen is essentially if a package has a new get feed, then uh, and is somehow marked as version nine compatible because at the moment that's done when you upload the file. But if your package is new get feed with a version nine flag, then the back office or not necessarily the back office, the marketplace, however that is is presented to you, will say, here's the command to install it. So it'll be .NET add, .NET what new add, whatever it is, uh, to add that package to your solution. So it is going to be much more a find out place, uh, a present this information, but not necessarily you then do it. Which comes to the question of goes back to how does things get installed, and it's a very developer focused thing. So I mean, it will be interesting to see how that happens. I mean, that leads on in my head. That's the other thing that came out of one of the .NET Core talks in Inco Garden was about options. Whenever anyone talks about .NET migration, they'll tell you the options have changed quite significantly, and they have. And so options have gone from being multiple XML files all over in your config folder to the appsettings.json file which contains the settings that you want for your project that are not uh, like the defaults. So whenever you change any Umbraco settings, they now live in there. But very interesting was I think uh, somebody was talking and said, this is essentially read-only now. So uh, the health checks. So for example, when you run the SMTP or one of the health checks, like the, I don't know, maybe the iframe one, and you run it, it would alter the web config to fix the iframe thing. And the health checks won't do that anymore. They will say, "This is a you. This is what you need to fix." So it's very much like the new get package. This is not what you need to run. The health checks are going to say, "This is what you need to fix." Yeah. But I've sort of already started hitting the issue with uh, using Publisher, which has configuration for server A and server B. So this is your source, and this is your target, and there's files flying around, and what you want to send. So you'll say, "I want to include media." Some of that is default config. And I've got quite a big UI in the back office of that package to, so you can set up a new server and you can turn all that on. But if that's now, if if config is now read-only, does that become a developer task? So that's the sort of things I'm thinking. Does that become, are we really leaning on a developer now to say, you need to go in and this is what you need to type this stuff into this JSON file to configure a server? Or is there other ways in which... I see. I suppose the answer might be a lot of it moves to the database. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, and that's very much what I'm seeing HQ and are doing with some of their bits. So yeah. if it has been on the file system before, it's potentially moving to the to the database now, so that it can be changed at runtime. Yeah, and I think that's probably and there have been calls for a long time for some form of configuration in the database, and there is the key service where you can put anything you want in. I suppose I might be unique in that I'm worried that for using we deploy the config before the server gets, because you need the config on both ends before you can push the content and the settings. So the the, uh, the API keys and stuff need to match, otherwise the communication won't work. So I, I might have a, a, a slightly different thing, but I suppose I'm just thinking about how that tied in with the new get stuff sort of becomes a bit more developer-focused than it was previously. I don't know. It's, it's just part of the whole process, really, and maybe just leaning that way a bit more. But it will be wonderful, though. I mean, I am liking .NET Core development. Yeah. I am, I'm switching slowly to Visual Studio Code over Visual Studio. 
mainly for speed, to be honest. And, and there's something weird, and there's a couple of uh, issues in GitHub that I've created, I think Nathan Wolf has created, around minification of JavaScript and it behaving oddly. And I found it behaves very oddly in Visual Studio and slightly oddly in Visual Studio Code. And that's one of the reasons I've moved over to Visual Studio Code. But these, I'm, I'm hoping to tee them problems and hopefully something that might be delved into before we get much further down the beta release candidate route. But there's definitely something weird going on with JavaScript. But moving to Visual Studio Code for .NET development, I think, has, has become, it's much cleaner, just feels much nicer to do. I try and use I try and use VS Code for other things as as much as I can. So if, if I'm doing if I've got a front end project, I will do the front end project in VS Code and and only do the back end stuff in Visual Studio. So if I can move to the VS Code, I, I find I'm just way more productive in it. Yeah, I mean I'm, I've got a bit of shortcut uh, memory. I know all the shortcuts in Visual Studio, and I'm having to relearn them. But other than, so that's not a big deal. There's a lot of nicer ones in VS Code. I know I. I can't remember if it was on plural site or just something I saw online, a YouTube video, but it was just somebody going through all the VS Code um, like shortcuts and sp- yeah. like speedy things for devs to know. Uh, just like multi-cursor and multi-select and find and highlight multiple things. Mm-hmm. I try and remember a few of them. I've got a few that are really useful. So if you are in a big file and you're trying to change the name of a something, you can easily select all of those and change them all at once. Uh, I think a really good person that from a front-end world, if you've ever watched uh, Adam Webman, who's the Tailwind guy, whenever you see any of his examples, it's it's insane how fastly he types and does things, but like creates code blocks and edits multiple like DOM elements all at the same time. It's just insane the productivity he's getting out of it which I'd love to learn all of that stuff and, and be really on top of all of that. I mean, I think most of my Visual Studio shortcuts are from uh, Scott Hanselman videos, probably, yeah. where he goes through and says, oh, by the way, did you know? Or Mads, who's done a, another Microsoft uh, one, who's done a lot of the extensions for Visual Studio. So maybe if they start using code, they might do the same videos. I'll just sort of you know pick up the same <laughs> shortcuts again because there's quite a lot of them. There's a, there's a lot of powerful shortcuts that I do use and lean on. In fact, it gets into a discussion which let's not because we'll have hours, which is Rider versus Visual Studio. I'm very much Visual Studio. Tell me what Rider does that Visual Studio doesn't, and I can usually find the shortcut. But that's a different podcast. But so, hopefully, Visual Studio Code, I can pick that up too. I guess beyond .NET Core, I think one of the biggest things I've seen in some of the presentations is more looking towards what's next, which is going to be the back office rewrite. Yeah. Uh, front-endy stuff so we've there was a again these were pretty much on on the first day and hq talks but future future proofing the back office and there was um the api extension points uh talk and also the the um ui toolkit did you did you watch any of those three i i only caught a bit of them i mean i don't know if we've officially said that you're on the uh future back office community team now aren't we you? did we did on the last one yeah oh do we did yeah so yeah to be perfectly honest i watched them a little i caught a little bit of them but i thought uh, i hope matt's watching these because 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 the future back office and my head is a bit full at the moment with the other stuff and the future back office i'm like i'm sort of entrusting to the umbraco brains of which i count you as one to uh, come away with some form of ultimate way of this is this is how these two things are going to work and how we get from a to b so i i'm watching with interest i'm not a big front-end guy so i have played about with things like view and i understand the basics of web components and so i haven't really delved much deeper than that and i understand totally going towards web components makes a lot of sense because it's a standard and going towards the standards i was a bit and a, a, a bit taken aback when there was a thing saying, essentially the back office of Umbraco will be developed in a platform, however it is, but it will be agnostic. So you can use any framework you want to develop the plugin is the is the aim. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I have no idea how that's going to work. But I'm sort of trusting, will that work? Or is it just a wonderful aim at the moment as a, we'll make it agnostic? I think it will be p- capable of, but I don't think it will be what people actually do. 
Um, we've had we've only had one back office community team discussion so far, but it was it was kind of touched on in there as well that even even if the um, uh, the back office is agnostic, because essentially we're going to they're, they're going to try and use web components as much as possible, and, and web components yeah. are self-contained, so they could be written in Vue, they could be written in React, and they can all play together nicely and whatnot. But at the end of the day, if multiple people are developing uh, web components in different frameworks, you end up having to pull all those frameworks in at some point when it when it's running on the front end. So it's a web component, but behind it is still that framework. So you don't want to be pulling in multiple frameworks. And and likewise, um, eventually people are going to start asking questions, how to do things, and you're going to want to give them one route of how to do that. And I think it's going to be whatever platform and bracket choose, that's what you're going to want to document. I guess the only other option is you try and explain how to do it in different frameworks and then you're speaking, talking about different SDKs and managing and keeping on top of those to to show how you do it in different languages. I think it's just going to be way too much. It's, um, it's a fight keeping the documentation up to date as it is without having to then do it in multiple examples. So I think what will happen is probably... Whatever Embraco chooses as their actual framework that they use behind the web components, I think most people are just going to choose that and run with that um, because it's going to be there. You, there's no point loading another resource if you don't need to. And I think it's going to be modern, whatever it's going to be. It's going to be something that people are probably going to be familiar with. Um, so, but I'm I'm really pleased to see some of this stuff, and I'm actually pleased that. Uh, the the talk to do with the APIs is uh, what we were discussing in our first back office community team. So we're talking about how we might um, create those extension APIs. And already in that, there's some things that changed from the presentation they gave us. So they presented that to us essentially, and we like gave our feedback. And there were already some changes that I saw in that. So it's nice that they're 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 listening so early on as well, and and adapting that around what what the community are actually thinking as well, or at least a spokesbody of what the community are <laughs> thinking. I, I don't envy them that at all. Having, uh, in, in previous worlds, inherited like long-running projects that didn't that had a constant travelling uh, development, so when they worked in the council, there was a, a management framework that had been developed by a couple of developers over 20, well, 10 to 15 years. Knowing what it did to replace it and come up with the APIs and the functionality was just near impossible. And I, I, I do think that's the challenge, and I don't envy them of working out what the API currently is. So, I mean, I know that both me and Nathan in it for Plumber and for Usenk have completely got hacks in there to put stuff into the send and publish buttons which is completely undocumented and there's a couple of them around and just in packages i know and finding them and saying this is how you now do that because there are umbraco is incredibly extensible just through the way it's done so adding extra features to menus is all there but there are still places where it isn't and then people hack and finding that is just going to be one massive challenge not that I'm saying they can't do it, I just I don't envy them having to do it and work out where the extension points are for that, that system, like sort of retrofitting them. That's exactly what Philip was saying in his talk. So essentially, Umbraco's got a fairly limited API, to be honest with you, but because it was written in Angular and you can do things like HTTP interceptors and essentially that allows you the power to swap anything, it's become a limitless API because yeah. it's we've we've essentially hacked everything and replaced things and told things to go over here rather than over there. And we we make it do what we want. But now it's that thing of, well, we need to rein back some control. So I think uh, Mads has done a really good job of mapping out a lot of that stuff um, in one of the uh, presentations that Philip gave. He showed a, a huge mind map that they put together of trying to track all of that stuff down because we obviously want to try and have a really flexible api to do all these types of things but we want to do them in the right way so i don't know it might end up being one of those things that it'll be it might be a, a bit of friction initially whilst yeah you, you realize those things aren't there but i think that's the right way to do it we need to pull it all back in and get a, a proper api and then 
will will grow that API rather than just hacking at the API. So I mean, to be fair, that's fine. That's how it's working with uh, the .NET Core, the V9. So uh, the the trees tree rendering was obviously rewritten, not rewritten, but refactored a bit to work with .NET Core, and there were things missing. And I've pointed them out and said, well, "You can't do this anymore." And it's just gone straight back in. It's fine. It's not like it was taken out on purpose. So as long as there's a sort of development roadmap where we can say, well, how do I do X anymore? And we go, oh, well, you can't. Or actually, yeah, you should be able to. It just needs to be fitted back in. That's It's just going to probably need an even more of an uh, inclusive beta program than V9's got. And V9's fairly inclusive just because it's such a massive change. I definitely think they know that. And I think the fact that they're talking about it now, like this is way before it's even going to be anywhere near ready at the moment. They're just sharing potential ideas. Like these are some of the things that we're playing around with, ideas using like client-side dependency injection or do you use something like Redux for uh, state management and these things. So these are the things that they're playing around with at the moment, but they're they're talking about them and sharing them, which which is great to get the feedback now because it, they understand and realize how huge a task this is going to be. It's yeah. it's not a simple thing swapping out the UI layer of a, of a no. <laughs> really popular CMS. I, I do remember the uh, UK festival where I think Pear just rocked up and says, have we written the backend Angular? <laughs> Which was great. It was a wonderful thing, but it was just like, oh, a couple of nights and we've, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think things have changed. Yeah, and also the, the UI toolkit, like I, I'm really pleased about that. I, I've spoken about that a few um, open circles at some of the code gardens. Where, I mean, you'll have hit the same thing where you're you're developing a, a user interface in your package. You want it to look like Umbraco, right? So you're gonna take like elements, or you'll you'll create the same DOM elements, and you'll copy the classes over and reuse their things, but now you're potentially using those classes in a place that they're not thinking about. So what in, invariably ends up happening is CSS changes because they're only focusing on on their use case and then it starts to break stuff in our UIs. And this is the classic non-breaking, breaking change. But to now start to think of Umbraco as an actual framework is what I've always wanted and this is that happening. So we're yeah. starting to see this toolkit of, right, this is what a button looks like. This is what a drop down looks like. These will be constants and they will be reused throughout. And you can build your things on these same thing, uh, these same uh, elements and it will look like Umbraco. And that's that to me is like what I've always wanted. So yeah. it's, it's great to see that actually happening and actually, and actually see it like, in in the presentation, they were showing the uh, storybook, which is um, like a, a mini website that shows you all the elements, and you can see the configurations and things. So it's it's almost like self documenting, but that's going to be so huge for 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 package dev moving forward. That will be a big difference. I mean, what what we did in the package team is we uh, we did do a very there's a UI library package that we sort of knocked up at one of the away days. Treat we treat things, which was actually online this year. But uh, we did a, a UI package just sort of very light with V8 for that. So you can see how to use a button in V8 and how to use a drop down or how to use an alert. But it doesn't get around the problems you're saying of that that's how to put them into a package. But that doesn't mean they're not going to change or they're not going to um, completely break. I mean, at the moment, I, I would suspect does this mean that some of the stuff you have, to, the hoops you have to jump through to use these things in your own custom sections at the moment? So getting rich text editors and et cetera to work in a custom section is a bit of a, of a leap unless you've got fluidity, which obviously makes it nice and easy. <laughs> but uh, with a library, we would hope that would be easier, wouldn't it? That would be, this is how you use it, and it just works every, everywhere across Umbreco that way. I mean, a really good example for, for us personally in Vendor is like the, the table. Um, yeah. So the list view table, we've used that heavily, but we've used it in non-standard ways. So in Umbraco, it's it's always expected that it's a single row with one, like just one thing in each cell. And the first one is always a name and it's always a link to the element. Yeah. But we do other things. So in, in Vendor, we show the order number, the customer name, and we'll show some progress bars for like um, the the gift cards and things. So it's, it, it's that thing of thinking beyond 
the immediate implementation. So obviously on Braco, when they built that, it was like, oh, we need a table to show list views of yeah. content. And the content item's got a name, it's got a published date, blah, blah, blah. And that's how they developed that UI. But thinking from a toolkit perspective, it's now not just thinking, oh, I need a table for this. It's like, well, we need a table. What should a table do? Like, how are other people going to use this table? Yeah. So it's that mindset now of, of, of really thinking about components from the component perspective, not just, I need this thing for this thing now. Yeah. So it's really cool. Yeah, it's really good. Are there any other things that we've seen that were quite useful? So I know Callum did a really good talk about search. He did. Um, he used Vendor as a demo, so I have to mention that. Yeah. Some of the stuff he knows is is really impressive. I know I've when he was showing some of the examples, I know I'm doing it the way that he, not that he's saying you shouldn't do, but I'm doing some of the older ways of doing it. Yeah. So it's still performant, but I'm doing the thing of creating custom fields usually with like things in a format that's searchable. Whereas Callum's suggestion yeah. is really good is creating your own anal analyzers and things, which is what you probably should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and his search, his search like package, is it a package? Is it, it is a search package, isn't it? It's, it's a load of helpers and making search easier. It was definitely almost, I mean, very old sites I worked on obviously had easy search on, which, uh, was was very good and just gave you all of that uh basic search really quick for a simple site i think that's almost certainly now callum's package is doing that and doing a lot more giving you a lot more power in the uh in the search yeah he talked a bit about facet search as well doesn't it does it do faceted search yeah yeah yeah, yeah. which, which oh, every time i've ever got near is a complete pain yep same and geo as well geolocated search yeah that's a pain We've done that on a few projects in the past of like the old manual way of doing it. And that was horrible. Yeah. So to have that nicely abstracted away behind a, a friendly API now is super cool. It is. Um, oh, a good one that I liked, not that it's necessarily package related, but it kind of is because he uh, gave a good example. So Steve Harland, who did the offensive on Braco. Oh, was that the hacking one? That That was scary. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was mainly scary. Is, is the answer to that one? I know. I know. Like, was it two or three years ago? Jeffrey gave a talk at Code Garden with some security things, and and I loved that one, uh, showing like how you can use the forward slash Umbraco because that screen changes. You can use that to try and figure out what version of yeah. Umbraco people yeah. are on, and therefore, if there are any vulnerabilities, target them. Uh, but yeah, Stephen gave a, a really nice talk with. Um, showing some examples and i think in his examples it's probably more than likely going to be the packages that are the security holes so if there's if somebody's built something custom like a quick integration have they left security holes yeah. or is there a package that offers something but then is abusable yeah. so i think his example was or one of the ones that i saw was a, a fake package that could create a pdf um from a template file and he showed that putting in a script tag it was uh, the rendering engine for the pdf essentially ran the view in a fake browser um which also ran the javascript and so you some javascript to then read the web.config and get like more information from your platform which really scary but really quite interesting it was very interesting very scary i think the thing that stood out for me was 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 always that but also the the uh the attack vectors and Mm. Assuming that if someone's got a compromised Umbraco account, which obviously you would think, I've I've worked on sites where there's two hundred editors, so you, it's probably fairly safe to assume that now and again one of those accounts might have a dodgy password. Yeah. But the idea that if you give those editors even slightly the wrong permissions, or you let them do something that might be, for example, embedding a bit of code in a page, which I've seen the demand for that all over the place. People say, can you know, can we embed? either a bit of JavaScript or even, you know, a bit of code in a page from an editor point of view. That's just a massive hole. And so it's not necessarily development. It's just like I've seen people request that and you just wonder. But basically, you're giving your editors the ability to run consoles on your, on your servers and elevate privileges, and that's quite scary. And from a using point of view, I mean, I, I work quite hard on making sure it's secure in what it does. But I know if you give somebody the wrong permissions or too much power 
someone that you think is incredibly dangerous because you know the ability to basically replace templates is in there and if you've got the wrong permissions or you've got someone who can oh i mean so an example i think he didn't say you sync directly or deploy but obviously it's, it's the idea that someone compromises your stage platform yeah and uh, and has got the right permission has got the right permissions to deploy they can they are on your live platform and obviously i've thought about that but just the the, the, the way it was presented it, it was it was very interesting and quite scary so, <laughs> um, I think we have a hardening document for using, but I think uh, maybe uh, when that sort of video's out, I might review it and just explicitly put these things in to say, you know, if you give people these permissions on your development platform, they then, in theory, can do this on your plug production platform. It's not a vulnerability in the package, but it's a vulnerability that you can configure into a package. Yeah, and I think that that was the thing that struck me. From a package developer point of view, obviously custom code and being careful about your code is definitely a thing, but just from a providing a package to people point of view, the potential ways in which it can be abused is, is very interesting, and I'm wondering whether I should do a bit more in highlighting those potential abuses to people to say, do be aware that if you do X, other people might be able to do Y. So, yeah. No, but in, in, in essence, it was scary. Scary but interesting. Yeah, they always are. Security talks scary and interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the only other only other areas really, I, I had to miss a few because I had to walk a dog and, mm. and various things, and it was getting pretty long days and things. But I think one of the big patterns I was seeing in quite a few of the talks actually was the headless thing. Yeah. So I think there were at least three talks about headless headless solutions. Yeah. I'm really gutted because I had to leave pretty early on Ponema's yeah. um, Blazor GraphQL talk, um, which looked pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't catch that one. No, but I, I am, from a package developer's perspective and from vendor's perspective, it's headless is an interesting concept that mm. is on is on my radar and thought process every now and yeah. again. But the thing of creating a, a headless API to vendors is quite alluring. Um, and it'd be pretty interesting to see if um, the Umbraco headless hardcore offering eventually opens up to certain things. So like, it'd be good if Vendor could be installed on there and if it had a headless API, I don't know how that would work with Umbraco's installation because I know they've got a dedicated uh, GraphQL layer that, that uses like really fancy tech behind it. So I don't know how I don't know how we would take advantage of that. But it'd be quite nice to be able to see other packages go on there and become yeah. headless offerings. I think with the headless that is if if it's to go back to the DXP platform, uh, I think the, there has to be a bit of a, an ability to integrate with the headless platform. I think one of the examples was Umbreco headless with another shop headless API that was external. Yeah. So I mean it makes perfect sense that you should be able to use the in the built-in e-commerce tools that you can get from Breco Headless as well, with it. I, from a personal point of view, I've always said uh, something like Translation Manager for me makes perfect sense to be something you could install on Headless or Hardcore because you want to run multilingual, you might want it translated. Yeah, but I've not really had the conversations with anyone about what that would mean for those two platforms because obviously, as you say, they're very custom built, and whenever people talk about where's the Headless for just Breco. Hardcore is a very integrated solution. It's not really a Umbreco headless solution so much as a, a headless platform that happens to have Umbreco underneath it. Which is fine. I'd just love to see some kind of uh, API to that that other people, uh, other packages could start to take advantage yeah. of. I do think it's probably pretty early days in their implementation. So Hardcore is really pretty new, really. Yeah. And especially the GraphQL side of things. So I know they've not necessarily got those things in place but it would be great to have those discussions and see if those are yeah. possibilities and opportunities i know i've been thrown on with other things anyway that this whole .NET core and new ui thing is going to be task enough so yeah. they've not been it's not been far enough up my to-do list to have to hold those discussions but i definitely want to have them at some point yeah um and specifically for vendor it's quite interesting because even in umbraco hq's own marketing material i think they did a, a survey or they've got hold of some survey results pretty recently in terms of headless usage 
and in their own research it's showing that the primary thing that people are using headless for is e-commerce so yeah it'd be perfect fit for vendor it would yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it would be great it's, i think it's time to think about branching out and having your own headless uh, platform somewhere <laughs> vendor as a service that's what you want yeah. <laughs> one day cool well they're all the things that really stood out to me yeah um from a from a topic perspective i guess the last thing to say would be a big congratulations to to hq for for doing all of that so this this was all online so historically it's all been a um we've all gone to Udense to to be there in in real life yeah. which i'm hoping we can do again next year but i think they did a pretty pretty good job of getting it no. Um, getting some of the whimsy of uh, yes. of Umbraco, <laughs> trying to capture that online is pretty difficult. But I think they did a good job. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the same as being there, and I don't think that was really possible. And uh, to be fair, I don't think they tried to say we'll make a, um, a no. the code garden experience online because that would be a bit insane. But it was very good, and actually, I think the the, the whimsy was great. I'm fairly sure I know who the rabbit is. But uh, <laughs> but it was uh, it was it was good and it was it was really well done, well posted. Yeah, I agree. And you know, some of the tools had teething problems, but doesn't every platform have teething problems? Well, exactly. Cool. Well, that was our roundup of of Code Garden from a package developer's perspective. So don't forget to like and subscribe. Yeah, like and subscribe, and. People say review on iPlayer, some, yeah. something. No, I iTunes makes a real difference. I no idea what that means. Makes a real <laughs> difference. I'm about to say, I don't know. No. Okay. Well. Yes. Till next time. All right. Ta-ra. Bye.